Good morning. This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Again, that's Daniel chapter 3. If you have one of the black Bibles from the back of the room, that's page 739. And although we're only going to read uh, Daniel uh, chapter 3, 1 through 6 right now, uh, Brett, when he goes to teach this morning, is actually going to teach through the entire chapter. So just to clarify that for you, we'll just be reading Daniel 3, 1 through 6. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Shauna. Is that coming through, my own? All right. That's good news. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brett Berger, as uh, Matthew introduced. And um, many of you don't know me. And uh, really, all you need to know is in the second service, I sit in the second row with my wife. That's about <laughs> I'm not a pastor here. I don't lead any of the ministries here. Um, I'm just a dude. Um, but I'm happy to be here. Actually, just a little bit about me, what, what I do um, is I'm a faculty member at Grand Canyon University. Um, I have the privilege of being able to teach uh, the Christian Worldview class at Grand Canyon. It's the one class that all undergraduates have to go through to get their little dose of Christian college. Um, and uh, it's great. I get to, uh, over the course of the year, engage about 600 students uh, online. And this year I'll have about 200 students in the classroom that I just get to as my job, <laughs> engage them in matters of the Christian faith, uh, in, in the gospel, how that gospel affects their lives, how it relates to the worldviews that are present in, uh, in the world. And so, uh, I, with, although there are things that make a job a job, I do, uh, I do enjoy mine. So, um, that's a little bit about what I do. Uh, this morning, I'm here, and I'm with you all preaching, and and, you know, Luke contacted me about a month ago to ask me to do this, and uh, I consider it a great honor when he does. I know as a, as a caring and loving uh, shepherd that he is of his flock, uh, it, it does mean a lot when he puts his trust in you to come and, and to, to take care of the sheep and to feed and to instruct. And so um, I take that uh, with great um, care. But with that being said, 
let's blow it up, all right? <laughs> so, um, this morning we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about the landscape that we live in today. Uh, and we're going to touch on matters of politics, and we're going to touch on matters of culture um, and the things going on in, in, in the media. Um, I'm, not here necess- I'm not here to endorse candidates for anything or, or to do anything like that or to uh, advocate for a particular platform. But the reality is we, we do live in some crazy times. Would you agree with that? Does anybody watch the news and just start to get a little anxious about things, just read news reports? I mean, we live in the post-9-11 era, obviously, and so terrorism is kind of a daily reminder about, uh, you know, all of the things that can go wrong, all of the dangers that exist out there. Um, so we have terrorism, we have unstable countries out there that have or are trying to get nuclear weapons, we have, um, we have terrorists that are trying to get nuclear weapons, we have uh, our economic situation, right? So we have a, a, a mounting debt that seems amazingly just beyond us and beyond repair, and you wonder, is it all going to come crashing down? Um, then you add on to that things that are going on in Europe with the euro and the Greece and, and those countries, are they going to? And China's rising up in its economic power. Um, and then you've got revolutions going on in the Middle East and oppression happening in Syria. And you just look out that and you're going, what's going to happen here? And, and you can get anxious and fearful about the things that are going on in the world. And when we look just at our culture as well, and, and we look at things that are going on morally, and for those of you who are parents, uh, I'm a parent of three small boys. They're my claim to fame. I'm, I'm, I'm not there. Uh, they're not my sons, but I'm their dad, you know. Oh, you're, the, you're, the, you're Cade's dad, or you're the twins' dad. Um, but as... As a, uh, as a parent, you look at the things that are going on morally, whether it's just the, the sexual uh, perversion, the sexual ex- um, exposure and experimentation and how young all of that's taking place, and you look at all of the stuff that's on the Internet, and, and we've already had, my boy's only nine, and he's already, you know, seen little things on the side of YouTube that you just don't want him to see or read. It's, it's, you feel like you can't escape it. And so we, we go through life, and, and we look out at the landscape of the world, and it seems like there are threats everywhere. And some of those are just kind of general threats, and some of those are threats you know, foreshadowings, they seem, of of threats to the faith. A culture in which Christianity and the Christian gospel can't be tolerated. Everything else can be, but the gospel cannot be. So, it is natural, and I don't blame anybody, and I fall into it myself, to look out at the world and to begin to fear, to begin to experience anxiety, And my concern is how we are responding to that fear. I want to put up this quote here. Uh, It's a quote from uh, the great philosopher Yoda, all right? (laughs) 
and I apologize, but I can't just read this quote in my normal voice. <laughs> All right? It just doesn't translate if you put it in your normal voice. And I apologize because I don't have a good Yoda impression. All right? But fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. Is that right? All right. Yeah. Is that okay, Greg? All right, good. Now, there's a lot of bad philosophy in Star Wars. <laughs> but I think that that's, that's a true progression. And my concern is that the church has been responding in fear, and that fear has been translated into anger. And that anger has been translated into hate. And it is resulting in just a greater amount of, of suffering, of conflict. And so to this morning, we're going to talk about how we ought to live in these times. What ought we to do in the face of so many things that threaten us and threaten our faith? What do we do when the cultural idols threaten with fire the believer. So, uh, Shauna wrote, uh, read us the, the beginning part of this story. And one of the things as we approach Daniel and we approach these stories, we're in a sense cursed by something. Well, a couple of things. We're cursed by the fact that these have become children's stories. <laughs> All right, so these are just Sunday school lessons, and, and we can do them in very trite ways. But we're also cursed by the fact that they're, they're so familiar to us, and they're so brief, and, and so we can, we can skirt through these things and not really realize the full impact of them. So what I want to do is kind of take a beginning point here and sort of set the stage a little bit uh, with the context of Daniel. Um, Josh, a couple of weeks ago, did a great job of sort of giving you kind of a historical outline or a, or a narrative that kind of leads up to Daniel and how Israel finds itself in exile. That they were disobedient to the covenant that, they, that God had made with them, and it had resulted in, in these, the curses, the curses of exile, that a foreign nation, that their enemy would come and defeat them and take them off into a foreign land. Well, I, wanna, I want to um, give you a little bit of a context of what the book of Daniel is all about and how it fits into the whole narrative, all right? So the purpose of Daniel is to give encouragement and instruction to the people who are in exile, okay? So it is written to a people who find themselves in a place of great suffering, in a foreign land, a pagan land that is hostile to their own faith. And it's written, as I said, to encourage them, encourage them in a life of faithfulness. And it's written to instruct them in what that life of faithfulness looks like. Well, it does, so, it does that in two different ways. Daniel is a very interesting book in the sense that it's got two very different halves to it. The first half of Daniel, chapters 1 through 7, in which the narratives that we're going to be reading here, um, give us pictures of lives to imitate. 
So for the people in exile, wondering how were they supposed to make life possible and make life, you know, exist here in, in exile, they're given these lives, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to look at and to imitate. So they give us lives to imitate. The book of Daniel also gives us these apocalyptic visions, <laughs> So these weird visions and dreams that are given to Daniel about goats and rams and horns and all of these things. And they're strange for us to, um, to, to read. But the purpose of those is to encourage the, the exiles that God is in control of all of history. And as they looked out at the landscape of the world around them, and they just, all they could see is the hostility and the suffering and, and the fact that they weren't being blessed in the land. Um, and the question would be, where are you, God? Why have you done this? The visions remind them that God is in control of all of history. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, will rise at God's command and he will fall at God's command, and other nations and empires will rise at God's command and fall at God's command, and ultimately, all of it is working to the point of a Messiah, a king, who will reign in an everlasting kingdom. And so, the book of Daniel gives us lives to imitate, and it reminds us of the sovereignty of God. And the interesting thing about the lives to imitate is that that these boys don't become revolutionary leaders. <laughs> they don't lead rebellions. They don't fight the culture. They actually become a part of it in a, in a meaningful way, though. They don't compromise their faith, and yet they become faithful servants to the pagan king. And they're recognized for their wisdom and their goodness, and they're exalted to positions of authority. And in chapters 1 and 2, we see, we see challenges to their faith, but they rise to it. And by rising to it, they're recognized for their worth, and then they are placed in, in positions of authority. Chapter 3, where we get here, is where that reaches its limits, where the loyal to the, to the king reaches its limits. And we've seen here that what Nebuchadnezzar has done has, is set up an idol. He set up a, a large image. I mean, this is, this is large kind of Statue of Liberty type size image uh, that he's, he's set up. And he has called all of the, the governors and the rulers from the surrounding regions, the surrounding nations in which he has conquered, and he has brought all these leaders to the capital, to the image. And he is going to establish himself as, as the ultimate authority. And he is going to establish their subjection to his rule. And he is going to do it by making all of them, at the right time in the ceremony, when the music plays, they must bow. They must bow. And this is the one thing that the boys, as I'm going to call them, because I'm not going to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over and over again, all right? So I'm going to call them the boys, <laughs> all right? 
the boys cannot do this. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is a polytheist. He believes in multiple gods, right? All kinds of gods. So Nebuchadnezzar does not have a problem with the boys worshiping Yahweh, their God. Fine, worship Yahweh. But you must bow to the idol. You must worship me also. But for Daniel and the boys, and the boys in this context... That is the one thing they can't do. You see, fidelity to Yahweh, their God, means that they, they, they live with the command that there shall be no other gods before them. Right? There's no other gods before them. You shall not worship any graven image. And so they cannot, in good conscience, bow down. And remember, they are in exile because as a nation, they've been doing a lot of bowing down to the idols of the nations around them. And, part of, and the reason why they're in exile, and part of the reason for the exile, is to cleanse them and to purge them of that idolatry, all right? So now they are going through that cleansing process, and they, these uh, are, are faithful Israelites who take that command seriously, and they cannot go where Nebuchadnezzar wants them to go. Do you want them to, 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 to govern this region or land? They can do it, and they can do it with wisdom and grace and goodness and confidence. But they cannot bow to the cultural idol. What are our idols um, today? Um, I know I laughed when I, when I listened to Josh's sermon because he said he had, he had the Tim Keller quote. You have to have the obligatory Tim Keller quote. And I laughed about that um, because Tim Keller does get quoted a lot. And I'm not going to quote Tim Keller this morning. I'm going to make reference to him. And I'm actually, being the contrarian that I am, I'm going to disagree with him slightly. All right? <laughs> so, t- yeah. I, I may enter the fiery furnace after this sermon, but uh, we'll see. Tim Keller says, rightly, I think, that uh, an idol is good things made ultimate things. So parts of our creation that are deified uh, in terms of our allegiance to those things. Um, they're parts of the creation that we give our trust our love and our service to. That trust and that love and that service that is reserved only for God. All right? So he's exactly right that. He says that, that in our culture, the primary, the dominant idols are money, sex, and power. And I don't deny that money, sex, and power are big idols, right? But I think that there's an idol that rules them all. <laughs> right? There's the one ring that rules them all. All right? And I believe that there's one idol that in our culture rules them all, and that is the idol of the individual. Now, it's not that individualism or selfishness or self-interest is unique to our culture or all t- our time. But what I do think about I do think is interesting about our culture and our time in the West and especially in America is that we have ratified this idol. We have, in a sense, given it the okay, and as a culture, we have um, 
exalted it um, to our primary allegiance. So um, what do I mean by that? I mean that in the 18th century, there was, a, there was a, a phase, a philosophical development, a kind of a spirit of the age that we now call the Enlightenment, all right? Or you might call it modernity. Now, excuse me for, I might sound like a, a, a professor now or an instructor giving a lecture uh, on philosophy, but it's important to my point. <laughs> that in the Enlightenment, what take, took place was this sort of rejection of tradition and traditional authorities. Um, and we exalted human reason to the top. So we no longer get truth uh, by, by virtue of revelation, by virtue of, of tradition handed down to us. Um, but it is only through human reason exercised through the sciences that we come to know, and that we would ultimately be able to, as human beings, to know the world so deeply and so well that we would begin to have mastery over that. Well, as the, as the Enlightenment took place and as all of those things began to um, emerge, there was this idea of human progress and the individual ability to know was exalted. But we've come to a place in the last, you know, debated 50 years or so, um, to what's called the post-enlightenment or post-modernity. And the interesting thing about post-modernity, and I would ar- I, some would argue and I would tend to agree with them, that it's not uh, a rejection of the enlightenment or modernity, but it's taking it to, a, to its logical conclusion. It's deteriorated to what it, what it was destined to, to deteriorate to. And that has resulted in the individual being the center of truth, right? So truth is no longer out there in reality, something that we're trying to come to understand and to know. Truth is something that I make for myself. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. Let's just be happy. Morality is something that I determine for myself, the individual, for their self. What's good for me might not be good for you, man. And just don't, and don't push your morality on me, right? The, the individual is the center of morality. The individual is the determiner of his own story. I'm, I'm working out my own journey. Right? There's no sense in which history is God's plan working out in God's purposes. It's, I am working out my own story here. Religion is something that I determine for myself. I'll pick and choose the beliefs that fit me. And happiness is whatever makes me feel happy. It's divorced completely from any sense of what the chief end of man is or what God has been created and designed to be. Happiness is something that I do whatever makes me feel good in the moment. So money and sex and power are indeed big idols in our culture, but I say, I I would argue that they merely feed (laughs) the idol of the individual.
Well, Nebuchadnezzar's idol threatens with fire. Remember, he's the polytheist. He can accept their worship, but they must accept his own. They must bow to his own image. And being the good tyrant that he is, he will enforce, and he will rule, and he will lead with fear and the threat of death. And in the same way, in our culture, the age of tolerance in which we can, we can do our own thing, right, the gospel is going to, uh, to come in conflict with that. Because ultimately, tolerance has its limits, right? And an absolute line has to be drawn somewhere. We live in a pluralistic culture. And so long as the gospel and the Christian faith is a personal relationship with God that we can do in the privacy of our own home, the gospel will have no conflict with our culture. So long as it's just about me and my relationship with God and, and my prayer closet, <laughs> there's no problems here. But that's not the gospel. You see, when the Christians announced that Jesus, this Jew from Nazareth, had died on the cross and had been raised from the dead, they were proclaiming him as the true universal Lord of all creation, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess before. That the gospel was that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is at hand, and that we all must repent in the face of it. You see, our culture, and I would say our government, is structured to keep the individual exalted. Let me give you an example of this, because you got, we got some righties and we got some lefties in here, and I, I would venture to say that in this, this place, we've probably got 90% righties and maybe 10% lefties, if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're good. But I will argue that both of these, these governments have been structured as a way to keep the individual at the top, to, in a sense, become the guarantor and the protector of each individual's right to their own pursuit of happiness. Now, over on the right, you got Ron Paul, you got the staunchest uh, libertarian, and they are going to emphasize the need for liberty, that we all need to have enough liberty to pursue our own life and our own happiness in the way that we see fit. Now, can you see where, where the, go the gospel is going to come in conflict with that? Because that's not ultimately what the gospel is telling us. The gospel is telling us that we must find our happiness, we must find our life and our liberty in Christ, the true ruler, the true king. Now, let's go over to the left. The left is doing the same thing, only they emphasize the need for uh, the protection of enough of the resources, the basic resources of life for every individual. 
Every individual has and needs the, the basics, and we'll create whatever social safety nets to provide them that basic, the basics, but it comes down to this, so that we would all have the ability to pursue our own rights, our own, uh, our, our, our own pursuit of happiness. And the gospel, again, is going to come in conflict with that. And as we kind of see, there are times in which the gospel now evokes hostility. Whether from the individual themselves or, or whether from government institutions or whether those are advocating to have these things placed in government uh, uh, institutions ratified by law, the gospel if it's not going to be a personal, private relationship with God that doesn't infringe on anybody else's rights, comes in conflict with the cultural idolatry. Well, this is going to lead to conflict. And let's look at the boys and how that they respond to it. Verse 16 and 18 now, let's just, let's just uh, maybe look at verse 15 really quick, because here's Nebuchadnezzar's final words before them. He is going to put them into the fiery furnace, and these are his last words, and these are the, the words of arrogance that come from, uh, from Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? The idol has placed himself as the ultimate authority. He is the one in whom life and death reside, right? And here's the response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The conflict arises, and the, the boys respond with this amazing confession of faith. So, when we, when we encounter the fires of our cultural idols, what are we to do? The example that the boys give us is that we would walk through the fire. We would walk through the fire. There are two things that they do not do here. They do not compromise. This is not the place to say, okay, well, I know I shouldn't do this. I'll just do it this one time, spare my life. I'm better for God if I'm alive than I'm dead, right? And I'll just ask for forgiveness later. They didn't do that. They placed themselves and trust themselves to God that he would be their deliverer. Second thing that they didn't do is they didn't curse Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't respond in hostility and anger. They still honor him and revere him with, the, with um, 
the, the adulations of being a king. They still refer him to the king. They still speak peaceful words and wise words to him. But they cannot bow down, right? They trust God, even though the consequences are unknown. You see, we know the end of the story. We know that they're going to be spared from the fiery furnace. They don't know that. This could be the final words that they say. They trust that God will be his deliverer, and maybe he will deliver them on the front end, but if not, they know he will be the deliverer on the back end. Okay? When we um, encounter the fires of our cultural idols, and we follow God in this world, there will naturally be times when everything is okay, right? Chapter 1 and 2, they obey God, everything's great. No conflict, no, you know, no persecution. But there will be times when doing the right thing is going to provoke hostility. If I speak to the kids for a second, Kids, you live, and as a parent, we, we fear for you and we pray for you <laughs> because we look out at the world and we see all that you are going through, the temptations that you are facing that we never had to face, or at least we didn't have to face as early and as young as you have to face. We know, though, that there will be a temptation to fit in, right? When all of your friends are, are making decisions about money, sex, and power, about drugs, uh, about alcohol, and you're sitting there, there's going to be the temptation to fit in. And there's going to be the fear that if I don't do what I know is right, what that little voice in my head is telling me that I shouldn't do, or the little voice is telling me I should do, there's the fear that that's going to bring hostility. That's going to, I'm going to lose friendships. Walk into the fire. <laughs> Trust God. Adults, you're at work. The boss wants you to fudge the numbers a little bit or tell the customer a little bit of a lie or, or whatever they want you to do in order to, for the good of the company or, or whatever, and, and you know your little voice in your head is saying, no, I shouldn't do this, or yes, I should do this, and you know that your boss is heavy-handed and you will suffer the consequences if you do not obey him. We have to be able to trust. Even though we don't know the consequences, we have to trust and walk through the fire. What's the consequence of what, what these boys did? All right? And I should say, by now, they're not boys. These are, these are grown men at this time in, in the exile. I just like to call them the boys. <laughs> um, what happens? Well, look at verse 24 and 25. Ultimately, the, the, the king puts them into the fiery furnace, but they are spared. 
And in verse 24 and 25, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the sons of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The boys are delivered. There's a personal deliverance that takes place. The individual is not, <laughs> is not just squashed in the grounds of this, uh, the gears of this whole situation, but God protects and, and vindicates these faithful individuals. And we have to be able to trust the same. Now, there's a question, and I won't be able to get into the details of it, about who is this fourth person in there, all right? Many, uh, the text seems to uh, describe it as an angelic being that's with them. Uh, there have been many that would argue that it could be a pre-incarnate form of, of Christ. I tend personally to go with the angelic interpretation, uh, though I am open <laughs> uh, to being proven wrong. But the point of it, though, is that God has sent His messenger and that God is standing with them in the midst of the fire. God sends, um, whether it be angelic or whether it be His, his presence in, in Himself, God promises to stand with us in the fire. There's a second thing that takes place here, and that is glory for God. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Their faith and the radical and courageous faith that they, that they demonstrated resulted in glory that was given to God. Greater glory and praise and honor is given to God. There's a third thing, though, that takes place here. And it's in verse 29 and 30, and that is there's deliverance for the people. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. <laughs> it's a little raw, a little rough around the edges, but nevertheless, um, and their house is laid to ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So here again, they are exalted for their wisdom, but the people, Israel in general, is now given this decree by the king to protect their worship of their God. Does this, this anything, does this sound like anything? Vindication of the individual, glory to God, deliverance for the people? You see, Jesus becomes the ultimate Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They lay a pattern of walking through the fire that Jesus would take to the nth degree. He would go through the ultimate fire. 
And he would not be spared on the front end, but he would go all the way through to the back end. And he would be ultimately vindicated through his resurrection. And this would mean deliverance for the people. Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate example of faith um, that we should um, imitate. And I'm going to finish with just a couple of, of verses that I want to show, show to you because this pattern is a pattern that we uh, ourselves are to take on as the people of God, as Jesus' followers. We're all familiar with Jesus' claim to take up your cross and follow after me. Um, I want to show you a couple of other places where this shows up. Philippians 2, can I get that one up there? Philippians <laughs> there we go. All right. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. That kind of goes against our cultural idol of individualism, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you saw there at the beginning, the command was to have this attitude in your own mind, right? That we as Jesus' people would follow him in the same kind of courageous faith, humble and courageous faith that would put others before him, that would love even to the point of death. One other one, we're going to go to 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What is interesting at this point in time is Christian is not the name of a new world religion. Christian is the name that the opponents of Christianity gave to the Christians to identify them. So when Paul is, or Peter rather, is saying, if you suffer as a Christian, you suffer with that shameful name culturally. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, to close it up right here, we live in crazy times, and I don't blame a single person for looking out at the landscape and being fear, fearful. But we cannot let that fear translate into anger and into hatred and into greater conflict with the world. We must follow the boys, <laughs> and we must follow Jesus in a cross-shaped life. If I took Yoda's words and I turned them into a positive statement, <laughs> all right? And I'll spare you the, the voice on this one, all right? But fear must be translated into love or into faith. Fear must be translated into faith. 
And faith leads to love. And love leads to sacrifice. And sacrifice leads to redemption. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is the shape that we have to take on. We can't, res- we can't respond in greater hostility, in greater fear and anger and, and just irrational behavior <laughs> that I see some Christians engaging in in the face of these fears. Let us, when we encounter the fires of the trials, when we come in conflict with our cultural idols, let's entrust ourselves to God. Let's walk through that fire. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and, and, and Lord, I know that I am not courageous in my faith most of the time. I know that I buckle under fear all the time. And I know that I fall to the temptation of preserving my own self becoming angry or becoming um, uh, hateful. And I just pray for us as your people that you would create in us um, the courage to walk with you in faith, to face these crazy times with trust, with love, and with sacrifice. Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. 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 Thanks, Brett. We are going to have an opportunity now.